Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. What you're raising is that children are most impacted by the conflict between the parents, more so than the notion of divorce. So what we see is that the impact potentially can be so pervasive in a child's functioning across their emotional well-being, their behavior, their cognitive development. So just to give you a couple of examples, potentially we can see a lot of emotional distress when children are exposed to parental conflict. So like, for example, some children will internalize. So instead of acting out, they'll turn inward, they'll withdraw socially, they'll withdraw emotionally, and they'll harbor all sorts of negative feelings internally. Welcome back to our fifth episode in Divorcing the Narcissist and High Conflict Divorce. If you're joining us for the first time, make sure to check out the first four episodes of the series where we explore the psychology behind high conflict personalities and the dysfunctional dance you engage in with your spouse, as well as strategies to regain your sanity as you navigate divorce, and most recently, the essential legal guidelines for divorcing a narcissist. Today, we shift our attention to your children. It's vital that as you enter the world of divorce, you understand the impact high conflict marriages have on children, as well as the best way to move forward to minimize any additional pain and struggle for them. Today, we'll be exploring the how, when, and what surrounding telling your children about the decision to divorce, the do's and don'ts of what to say and how to act during the legal process, and some key questions to consider as you emerge and begin parenting with your ex in a new way post-divorce. For this crucial conversation, we have an incredible guest whose passion and purpose is to apply her knowledge of psychology to promote the understanding, sensitivity, and meaningful decision-making of parents and other involved professionals. Leia Younger is a licensed psychologist in New York State who has worked in elementary schools and child inpatient settings and has been practicing in the fields of child and forensic psychology. 
Dr. Younger is the clinical director of Younger Psychology and provides a wide range of child and divorce-related services. She provides trial consultation services, including testifying as an expert witness and conducting peer reviews for families involved in both family and Supreme Courts throughout much of the downstate area, New York area. Leah Younger has also been an instructor on childhood and adolescent psychopathology at Mercy College and is currently an adjunct faculty member at Pace University's doctoral program, Teaching Infant Assessment. You can find out more about Leah Younger at youngerpsychology.com. I'm really excited to have you with us today, Leah. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So there's so much uh, I want to talk about in terms of entering divorce. And yet I want to invite you to lay a little foundation groundwork for our listeners uh, regarding the impact and maybe what to look for in their children um, who have been raised in a high-conflict marriage. It's really a great point to start because whether we're, your audience members are parents who are considering divorce or have been divorced for a while, what you're raising is that children are most impacted by the conflict between the parents, more so than the notion of divorce. So what we see is that the impact potentially can be so pervasive in a child's functioning across their emotional well-being, their behavior, their cognitive development. So just to give you a couple of examples, potentially we can see a lot of emotional distress when children are exposed to parental conflict. So like, for example, some children will internalize. So instead of acting out, they'll turn inward, they'll withdraw socially, they'll withdraw emotionally, and they'll harbor all sorts of negative feelings internally. Other children, we see that they're impacted externally, as in their behavior. So they'll be acting out, starting fights with friends, arguing with parents, arguing with siblings. And when we think about cognitive impact, the way the brain functions, a child's attention and their ability to sustain attention, tune out distractions, that can be affected as well as sleep patterns. So we can be talking about nightmares, trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep. So I I always beg the parents that I work with to really think hard and long before they expose children to conflict because the effects really can be so detrimental and disruptive of all of the processes of childhood. Right. And and one of the things I hear in what you're saying, and I've seen this in working with some of my clients, is uh, there's the child who who acts out where it's a little bit obvious, but there's also like the good child, right? The straight A mm-hmm. child who I'm hearing you say that that, you know, just because you don't see the external behavior doesn't mean that there isn't something going on internally. That's right. We don't want to leave it to the responsibility of the children to let us know who needs support and who needs help. So it's absolutely our responsibility as professionals and as parents to look out 
all of these children and see if and how they're being impacted by the parental conflict. Because the children who are acting out, they're sort of like the squeaky wheel and they'll get the grease. But just because a wheel isn't squeaking doesn't mean it doesn't need attention and care. Right. And I think the rule of thumb would be if your child is raised in a high conflict environment, there's something going on like it's it's impacting them. They're not they're not emerging unscathed. And so pay close attention and tune in. Is that is that fair? That's absolutely fair. I think many people don't give children enough credit. And a lot of people that I sort of cross my path with, they'll say things like, oh, our children are protected. They don't know we fight in a separate room. And it's sweet that parents think that. But the reality is that most children are very perceptive of their environment and they pick up on it's not the verbal screaming and yelling. It's the nonverbal attitudes that they see between the parents, the the cold shoulder looking the other way, not offering to take something out of the refrigerator. So kids really are aware of their parents' dynamic. So absolutely, any child that comes from a high conflict home should be attended to. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I've had the exact same conversations and um, and it, it doesn't it doesn't serve the parents at all to think that uh, that this is hidden from the children. I mean, children are so incredibly perceptive, right? They're they're, mm-hmm. they're just uh, they're more aware than we think. Um, so. One of the things I want to the the people who are listening, we're really gearing this uh, program to people who are uh, in high conflict divorce because they're divorcing someone with a personality disorder, someone who just is wired to um, to be of higher conflict, more difficult to engage and negotiate with. And so your statement that you encourage parents to think before they engage in conflict, before we jump into the divorce part, what do you say to parents who there's no choice? One party is high conflict. I I had a situation when my my daughter was maybe five and she walked into the dining room. Stop screaming. Stop fighting. And I wasn't saying a word, but Mm -hmm. but dad was had a whole lot to say. And it was very high conflict. What do you say to the parents who are in that situation? Um, What's the best that they can do? In the moment when the child is walking into the conflict, quite literally, I think that often serves as a reminder for most parents, hey, we have to cut it out for this moment. And immediately, I think what you want to say to the child is, you're right, we shouldn't be doing this. And we're going to work on not fighting, because I think you want to respond to the child's emotional reaction in the moment and potentially whatever else they're bringing. So whatever they've been exposed to up until that point and the child's predictions for the future about, oh, this is awful and this is never going to change. But separate from responding to the child, to the best of your ability as the adult, try to come up with the structure where you can have conversations with the other parent outside of the child's listening, outside of the child's earshot. So it might look something like, 
deciding to email each other when, when there's disputes or setting aside time on every single day at the same time to discuss what's going on when you know your child is at school at some extracurricular activity. Uh, you're talking about parents who are getting divorced from difficult personalities. So, of course, everything I'm saying is not going to be met with open arms. So what I always tell my parents is try to figure out how to hook the other parents. So what will the other parent respond to? What drives them? What gets them to agree or gets them to enact whatever behavior it is? And see if you can find a way to bring that up. So, for example, if the other parent really cares about their child liking them or really cares about their child turning to them in, in time of need, then a way to frame the approach that I'm talking about is to say, you know, I noticed when we don't fight in front of our child, but instead we are able to approach her and say, hey, mommy and daddy came up with a decision. Our child is really happy. And every time that we've done something like this, it seems to me that she's more comfortable around each of us. So that sort of is the hook for the framework of let's take a different approach. Right, right. Um, and I think that there's a, the, the other thing that comes to me, and we, we talked about this in one of our recent shows, is is boundaries. I know um, sometimes if, if you have an ex who's, who's just really resistant to anything that you have to say, um, the best thing to do is to um, to avoid the conflict, right? So if if the kids are home and and something's brewing, to literally take them and leave the house or go to like if you know that the conflict is going to happen and they're going to be exposed to it, to just be prepared and set the boundary ahead of time. Because a lot of times, I, I think what you're saying makes so much sense, but I'm also smiling and thinking of how many of my clients, their spouses would be like, it's all about you, it's your fault. And and so that, that too, that conversation too, just becomes another argument, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Going through a divorce is challenging. It involves many issues, legal, financial, emotional, and social, and requires the guidance of a seasoned legal team to achieve optimal outcomes. That's the promise of Laufer, Delena, Jensen, Bradley, and Doran. Choosing the right family lawyer could be the most important decision you make in the divorce process. There's life after divorce, and Laufer's team helps you to get there. Providing options to mediate, arbitrate, collaborate, or litigate, the firm handles issues such as alimony, custody, child support, and equitable distribution. Each case is staffed with both a male and female attorney as their clients benefit from having both gender perspectives on their side, and that distinguishes their firm. You can get your free consultation today by calling 973-285-1444 and mention that you heard about them on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. For the parents that have no choice but to do what you're describing, 
I still think it remains important to explain to the children why you're taking the action you're taking. So sometimes you don't need to do that if it's par for the course that at this given time of day, we might normally leave the house to go grocery shopping. Then it's regular routine. The child might not know why you're doing this. But if mm-hmm. it's atypical to be leaving this house at a particular time and the child in all likelihood knows what's going on on some level, I do think it's important to explain to the child or the children Hey guys, look, I don't want there to be a fight. I don't want you to have to deal with this. So let's take a break. Let's take a time out and let's go grocery shopping. Again, I don't love the idea of explaining to the children that the parents are fighting, but if they're aware of it anyway, and if it's been ongoing anyway, then there's something to be gained by teaching children coping skills. How do you cope? How do you respond when conflict is not avoidable? And that approach I really love. And I want to hold off on that a little bit. But I think that the the value of starting right from the beginning to um, to teaching children coping skills, because they're going to have to navigate that high conflict personality for the rest of their lives, too. That's right. And so there is that like what we learn, we pay forward by not bashing the the other parent, but rather teaching the child the mechanisms to to navigate that person's um, uh, personality. So mm-hmm. so let's let let's dive into the the legal process uh, right from the beginning. Let's try and do this chronologically, and I would love at some point to for you to share some tips on on age appropriate. But so here we are. Um, one or the other parent decided that they want a divorce and. Um, and one of the most difficult things is uh, how do we tell the kids? When do we tell the kids? What do we tell the kids? And again, this is all couch, not in your garden variety divorce. This is your high conflict personality disorder divorce. What do you recommend? So I say, if I can veer off for just one second, I want your listeners to remember that aside from everything that we're talking about as it relates to divorce, it's really important not to forget that the children are still existing as children with needs outside of divorce. So their biological and psychological and social needs don't stop just because their parents are getting divorced. So when we think about how to pursue this process of divorce, whether you have choice or not, I'd just like to remind all the listeners, you still have to work on meeting your children's needs in the outside world, because that really will serve as a great protective factor for these children as their high conflict parents are are going at it in not such a collaborative or cooperative way. But beyond that, sorry, can you you just, I want you to Give an example, because that, that the message sounds really strong, but I want you to, can you root that in an example? Sure. So I'll break it down one example per category of need. So if we're talking about biological needs, something as simple as the routines that support their needs, like eating and sleeping. Those needs don't stop just because their parents might be up all night on the phone with their lawyers and drafting motions. Children still need to have breakfast, lunch and dinner, still need to have their nighttime routine. And to the best that parents are able, 
don't have any sort of disruption to what the children have already established and become accustomed to in their routines. If we're talking about psychological needs, for example, children still need to be raised. Children still need to be parented. Children still need to be taught. How do they cope with the world? How do they handle the fight that they had with their classmate? How do they handle the fact that their best friend for the last seven years is suddenly not talking to them? These needs and the attention that that the children are going to be looking for from their parents typically don't stop. So as hard as it is for the parents, ideally, you want to carve out room to continue to parent your children. And then just mm-hmm. to give you an example, socially, um, their, their friends, their school, their community, as best as you can as a parent, try to upkeep those points of contact because they will offer reprieve for the children. So as best as you can, keep their outlets running, keep their exposure to other people going so that they're not constantly surrounded by this world of divorce that you're living in as a parent. Excellent. So, uh, and and the bigger picture to me sounds like um, they're entering this really upheaving transition so any normalcy mm-hmm. that you can keep in their routine and their life that they keep playing soccer or they keep um you know those play dates or whatever that that's really helpful for them to have that normalcy that's right so before when you were mentioning about the biggest do's and the biggest don'ts the biggest do as as i think of it is maintain as much consistency in the children's lives as possible So whether it's the actual schedule, the actual routines, or the time that they are used to spending with each parent. By the time many parents are getting divorced, if the children are older, there's certain norms. It's fairly typical for there to be one parent who works most of the time and really only spends time with the children nights and weekends. And what happens is when parents get divorced, If that parent who typically wasn't around a lot is going to be interested in, say, a 50-50 schedule, oftentimes suddenly there's going to be a massive change and that parent will start working from home and will suddenly be available for the children at all hours of the day. And I fully understand from a legal strategy perspective why that parent might be doing that or might be advised to do that from their lawyer. But if the parents are working with me, I at least encourage them to think about how terrifying that might be for the children, because if they're really not used to it, they're going to know something's going on and they just might be really confused. Why suddenly are you home? Why suddenly are you taking me to school? Why suddenly is everything around me changing? And Mm. the reason that I want parents to think about this is because divorce itself, once it actually happens and there's a plan in place brings so much change with it that the best thing we can do is keep as many variables consistent as possible so that when we're ready to say, here's the plan, here's the schedule, here's the change, the children actually have room to tolerate that change. But if they've been forced to accommodate so many changes before we even get to the new parenting plan itself, they might not have the resources to adjust to that well. 
I think that's a brilliant, brilliant tip. And and I want to say to those of you who have a spouse who will fight you every step of the way, even with this piece of information, look at where you can maintain consistency because it's so easy to go to, well, he or she's not going to cooperate in, in these five areas. Well, if there's two areas where it's not an issue, then 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 pour into those. So so no matter what it is that you're facing, if there are certain areas where you can maintain consistency with your children, start there and build from there. Um, okay, great. So we've decided to divorce and we have to tell the children. Um, now, there may be age range things that you want to say in here, but in general, uh, this is one of the hardest things for parents is um, when when do we say something? Um, you know, what do we say? Do, do we do it together? Do we do it separately? Do we tell different age children um, uh, together or separately? Uh, so many different variables. High conflict. What's the what's the recommendation, Leia? So ideally, you're not saying anything until you have something material to say. And I'm sharing this with you because so many of the parents that I work with have this burning desire to tell the children. Like once they've made a decision to divorce or the other parent has made a decision to divorce, many parents then want to say, OK, we need to tell the children now. And it is often a great effort to have that parent understand that it is not in the child's best interest to know that there is this looming esoteric concept of divorce without knowing exactly what those details are. Because when you do that, when you give that sense to children, I'm concerned that you're just increasing the likelihood that they're going to have so much anxiety build up over time in terms of what is that going to look like? And when is that going to look like? And I can't tell you how many children I meet with that share with me, oh, you know, my parents are getting a divorce, but I don't know when it's going to happen. And why can't it just happen already? And I'm so tired and I'm so frustrated and I don't even know what this divorce means, but when is it going to happen? And, and so on and so forth. And so, of course, the process itself is going to be difficult for the children, no matter what, no matter when. But I think if you can delay informing them even just a little bit until you have the tiniest sense of here's the first change that we're going to make. You, you do like you're doing so well by your children because you're preventing that unnecessary stress of, of the unknown. So that's such an interesting point. So, um, you know, some of the complications that come up is, you know, I want to I want to tell my best friend, I want to tell the neighbor, um, I don't want someone else telling the children before we tell the children. And, mm -hmm. and at the end, the tail end of what you just said seemed to me an opening. So it's not that you've gone three quarters of the way through your your litigation and, and you know the shared parenting schedule, but it might be, correct me if I'm going in the wrong path here or the right one, that it might be that you and your uh, soon-to-be ex have agreed that uh, you'll start um, spending 
um, whatever the weekends uh, with the kids alone or or that you've made some agreement to a change that's heading in that direction. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely, because that's the harmony of the when and the how. So the best first step would be when there's some agreement for some type of change. And you gave a good number of examples. Some other examples might be deciding that one parent is going to be responsible for transportation for the Monday extracurriculars and the other parent is responsible for the Tuesday transportation. So any change or decision that delegates parenting responsibilities, that is the kind of thing that is safe to share with children. And it it can be shared under the explanation of your father and I, your mother and I have decided to do this so that we each get special time with you. So special time is a word that I got a lot of my parents to use. Another framework um, is the notion of parents making changes or making decisions to improve the family situation. And I like using that language because then you are holding on to the, the notion, the terminology and the framework of family, because whether your parents are divorced or not, they're still family and your family is still family, whether you're living in one house, two houses or five houses. So when agreements are made, however small scale, the best explanation is one where we decided this together. We think that this is going to be helpful for everyone. And you give the children a chance to give you feedback and for you to coach them to see hey, look, here's why this is helpful. This is something special that we didn't used to have until now. And now that we've made this change, we have this new opportunity or this new experience together. I love that. Yeah, because it really does give it a very real and and yet positive spin amidst what's going to be um, uncertain and scary. Absolutely. What else? What are the other tips around telling the children? So you mentioned about age. Um, So age, maturation, cognitive development, these are obviously all factors that parents should be taking into consideration because what you tell a five-year-old should be very different than what you tell a 15-year-old. And I think the younger children don't necessarily need so much data. They need most of the time they want to know the basics, who am I going to see and when am I going to see? And they want typically the assurance that they're going to be seeing both parents and life is going to continue and they're still going to have their friends and they're still going to go to school. I find with my older children that I work with, there's often a curiosity for more detail. And with the preteens and the teens, it can get a little bit difficult because some of them might push for the intimate information. But why did you break up? Did he cheat on you? Did you steal the money? Because they will be ex- they will have been exposed to the conflict and they will have picked up on the family secrets, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so what you were saying about boundaries becomes really important because the children oftentimes they're going to push and they're going to want to know the juicy gossip. And you might have one parent who more freely shares it and the other parent who is extra careful not to. And then you have that issue that you mentioned before of the child comes to you and says, but mommy told me that you're sleeping with your secretary. Right. So when your kid is in front of you and saying that you no longer have the option 
to not expose them because they've already been exposed. So just to give your listeners something to think about when that happens, whatever the allegation is that your child is sharing with you, your best bet is to think about why might this be something that is concerning to your child and what is the reason that your child is particularly interested in knowing this tidbit of information. Because sure, on the surface, it's it's the gossip and it's the I want to know and how terrible of a person are you. But on a deeper level, many times it's really about, did you hurt my other parent who I love so much? And are you going to abandon me? And what does this mean for what the whole neighborhood is now going to know about? So if you can dig a little bit and speak to what's going on beneath the surface, that potentially uh, will be a great bonding moment for you and your child. Calming the chaos of divorce begins with quieting your mind and getting clear on what you want and how to get it. That's why we created the Divorce Survival Kit. It's an easy to digest guide with five essential tips that help transform your suffering into valuable insights and your confusion into effective action. So go to divorcerecoverylifeline.com and grab your Divorce Survival Kit today. That that last point is so poignant. There's so often where a child asks a question, and um, and the parent responds from a parental perspective, right? Not, mm-hmm. I had a client once, and and her son, maybe it was in the ninth grade. When are we getting divorced? When when's the divorce going to be final? When's the and she wanted to go into this whole thing about the courts and everything. And I said, Have you asked him why he's asking? Mm-hmm. And and she went home and she said, what do you want to know? And he said, because daddy doesn't want a dog. And I know that you're willing to have a <laughs> pet. And I really, I was hoping we could get a puppy when it was all done. She came back, she was, she was chuckling. And she said, right. never, like what I have imagined. And so we answer a question that's very different than what they're actually asking. And to your point, you know, how did you feel when 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 mom said that? Or, you know, what are you concerned about? And 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 start asking some open-ended questions so that the child can even figure out what's going on. And then you're actually having the conversation they're asking you to have, as opposed to the one you think they want to have. Do you do you agree with that? <laughs> Absolutely. And if you're able to do what you just described, I think you're doing the greatest service for your children because then you are effectively empathizing with them. So you're not approaching the scenario by saying what you think they want to hear, but you are taking the time to be curious and inquire and learn what is really going on for them internally. What are they worried about? What are they thinking about? What's occupying their attention, their dreams, their their writing assignments in school? And then you're speaking to that. So not only are you giving them the responses that they need, you're also teaching them that they matter 
they're not going to get lost in this process. And despite whatever you have going on with the other parent, you're still taking the time and attention to think about what their experiences are like. Yeah. So that's perfect. Thank you so much. So, uh, so you want to say something when you actually have some plan, even even just the next step. Uh, you want to give them enough information, but not more than they can handle or ask for. And um, and and if you're in that position, and most of our listeners will be, where the other parent blames or criticizes or shares inappropriate information, um, we're really saying uh, ask before you answer uh, so that you understand what their fear is, what their trigger is, what their desire is for information, and you give them what they need and not what you think um, they're asking for. That was a perfect summary. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So in the midst of the negotiations, so now we've told them they know. um, And now there's all of this negotiating around finances, around parenting time, around uh, child support. and, And we're dealing with an audience of people who generally, both sides, I have found in high conflict divorces that the pathological narcissist is is very boundary oblivious. But the, you know, the codependent who was connected to him or her um, also typically was raised with no boundaries, not necessarily mm-hmm. understanding what they are, the importance of them, how to articulate them. So here we are with all of these really adult complicated issues and somebody's most likely spewing and sharing and um, tossing information around that's not um, that that's not age appropriate uh, any other tips on on how to handle that yes yeah, so I want to touch on what you were saying about finances and child support because I'm approaching this from the mental health lens, whereas the other involved professionals might be approaching it from the legal lens or the financial lens. And I know mm-hmm. that there there's a lot of implications on the finances based on what the parenting schedule is. So when I'm given a voice, I always, I practically beg everyone involved to bifurcate, which means separate out the issues of finances from the matter of the parenting time and the parenting schedule. Because to me, the schedule should be one which is a setup that is best or as best as possible for all of the children involved, as well as a schedule that allows each parent to be the best parent that they actually can be, as opposed to the best parent that they want to be, but is maybe a little bit of of a fantasy and a little bit out of reach from the reality of the demands of having to have a job and other responsibilities that they have. So to me, when you come up with the schedule and when you're in negotiations about a parenting plan, ideally, that conversation is separate from the conversation of finances. It doesn't always work, but with most of the families that are working with me, either as a consultant or as a parenting coordinator, or someone that they're coming to specifically to help them design the parenting plan schedule, we're able to separate out the conversation of finances so that it is totally separate from the agreement that we're able to reach. 
So, um, so I'm hearing that your tip is really that that's directly that's directed to the parents to to separate it out. Uh, well, it's the, the parents parent and any professionals they're working with because their lawyers would have to support this. And if they also happen to be working with um, finance specialists, forensic accountants and whatnot, they also would all have to be on board to let the parents do this. And what happens when the parent, one of the parents, begins to share um, this information? You know, daddy's going to walk away with all of this money and we're going to be living in a basement or, you know, mommy's trying to take all of my money and, and I'm not going to have anything. Or when when that kind of information um, is shared with children of whatever age, what can what can, because this happens, it's just, it absolutely happens. So what do we do mm -hmm. about it? So your step one is, is to realize and then to provide what we call a corrective emotional experience. So going mm. back to what we said a couple of minutes ago, think about what that experience was like to, for the child to hear that, what gamut of emotions they must have experienced ranging from being afraid that they're going to live in a rat infested apartment to absolute hatred for the parent that is supposedly causing that. Right. So think about the emotional reactions the child had. Try to correct for that by by giving this basic but fulfilling response that sort of lets the child know that's not something you need to worry about. That's not something that's ever happened before. I'm doing everything I can to keep your life as comfortable and as consistent as it is now to what you're used to. But again, start with what was their experience like and try to respond to that emotion and then give a little bit of the reality test of we don't need to go through the details but think about how comfortable you are with me as your parent, the secure relationship that we have. And in the same way that I make sure, fill in the blank, you have lunch every day, you make it to soccer on time. I'm going to make sure that you, your life continues to stay comfortable as close to what you're used to as possible. And I'd say that one other element to add in is without coming across as scolding the other parent, Give over the message that you are disappointed that the other child that the child had to hear this, and it's unfortunate that the child has this knowledge, and you're doing everything you. Right, right. So, um, one of the things that comes to mind for me is uh, one of our recent shows we were talking about. Uh, being parented by a codependent and a pathological narcissist, and the the likelihood that one of the that the child will become one or the other, and so for the child who's trying to protect a parent, um, what's the conversation? Is there a conversation that can be had that that they don't have to do that? Like something to begin to um, keep that codependence from rooting in so deeply. The best thing that I think you can do in a scenario like that is point to a time where you as the parent 
were able to be responsive and step up for yourself and set a boundary and take care of yourself and not needing to rely on the child at all. Because sometimes just saying to a child, you don't need to do that, I'll take care of it, isn't enough. They won't believe you and it doesn't resonate deeply enough. But if your child is able to to count, even on, on one hand, a number of times where they didn't need to come to your rescue, you came to your own rescue, that will help them accept the message that you're giving them. Okay. Okay, great. Um, so you had mentioned earlier, and I have this question, I don't know if there's a, that the parent who um, suddenly starts taking more control and and it may be that look we're getting divorced i've been the primary care that the primary wage earner and now i i want to be more involved uh but so so that that change where all of a sudden one parent is uh picking up from school taking you to the doctor and maybe even overly controlling taking you you know so so the 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 parent who's been doing the most is almost um uh, elbowed out uh that that's got you mentioned that's very confusing to the child if you can't stop the parent from doing that how do you best handle it with the children? I always want to give some thought as to what's driving this sudden change or the sudden need for control. Because if it is about legal positioning, like I said before, perhaps there's another way that we can give that parent some sense of security or some way that we can address their concern that if I don't totally turn this world upside down. I'm never going to have a chance to have my children half of the time. So I guess what I'm getting at is if you can understand what's driving this, then we can all be thoughtful to see if there's another way to address that concern or that emotion. So say, for example, the parent is thinking, maybe even it's with the best of intentions. They're thinking, okay, we will be getting divorced. So now that we, we will be divorced, I have to step up more than I have until now because I can't really rely on the other parent. So I need to know what's going on in school. I need to know what's going on with the doctor. I need to have information that until now wasn't flowing straight to me. It was flowing to the other parent who then passed it along to me. In a scenario like that, that's actually good thinking if it is with the purest of intentions. And so I would want both parents to have access to the data. And sometimes it's just a matter of putting their name on the school mailing list, putting their name on, on the pediatrician list so that when one parent gets data, the other parent has access to that same data as well. And I keep saying the, the idea of pure intentions because in an ideal world, if a, because of a divorce, a parent gets more involved, and it's not just momentary because we're in the midst of litigation, but it is ongoing and continuous. I would say in most cases, the children are better off. They're better off having two parents that are involved in their life and that are aware of the ongoings and stay on top of what's happening. So Absolutely. if there's a way to help that, then let's do it. So what about when that's not the case? What about when when you know that you've been married to someone who's got to win, they're manipulative, they 
it, it's always been about that. You know, it's about that. And, and here it is, it's happening. What do you do? So when you're designing the parenting plan with parents like this, more so than anyone else, it is really important that the parenting plan account for that question of what do you do? So who's responsible for scheduling appointments? Who's responsible for taking the child to their annual checkup and so on and so forth? Because if we can sit down with everyone and come up with answers to this, it might be difficult to get there. But once we have that plan in place and it's in the parenting plan, it's clear to everyone this is the path forward. This is how these issues get dealt with. This is what we do if there's a dispute that we don't agree on or a parent is able to say, you know what? I really like being involved in everything, but I can understand that this area is more important to you than it is to me. So I can give that area to you and I'll have involvement or say on a different area. Gotcha. So to the degree that there's any ability to negotiate, decide what's most important to you, see what's most important to your spouse. What can you, what can you, what can you give up? What can you, um, what can you hold on to? And I'm hearing that detailed plan. And when it comes to uh, the kind of parenting that that this community of people is going to be doing, um, the chances of co-parenting versus parallel parenting are very much, much lower. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. So uh, so here you are, you're, you're working through the finances, you come up with a parenting schedule, and then there's every decision is an argument, every doctor's appointment is an argument, every um, every, you know, report card is a criticism. What do you recommend in terms of crafting something post-divorce so that the kids aren't constantly in the midst of this um, ongoing conflict? Many parents will agree to a professional whose title is called a parenting coordinator. And parenting coordination is all about alternate dispute resolution so that instead of the parents duking it out and not actually getting anywhere, there is a structured process in place with a neutral third party to ideally help the parents reach agreement by mediating the issue. But if that is not possible on any one given issue, that parenting coordinator then has a certain degree of authority to make a recommendation that is binding unless a court overturns it. Now, since this is a podcast, and I'm sure your listeners are from all over, it does. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so really, you have to check with with your attorney because parent the authority of parent coordinators is going to be very different across the country mm -hmm. and certainly in other countries. But it's it's a it's it, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because that expert is a fantastic tool. You just need to know the parameters within which they're working. Exactly. Yeah. So, so one thing you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say that for this, for the families where a parenting coordinator is not an option, 
just to give them something to think about. If the children are a bit older, so they've been in school for some time, they've been with the pediatrician for some time, they've been with the dentist for some time, often parents will leave those professionals as, as the tiebreaker, or they will agree to follow the recommendations of those professionals if there's a dispute on medical or dental or educational decisions. Right. Yeah. And that I've, I've seen a lot of clients do that where it's like, if we disagree, the, you know, the, the child's therapist will make the call or the child's, you know, um, teacher or what have you. So that, that's a great tip as well. There's a couple of other experts I know you wanted to mention before we begin to wrap up in terms of uh, experts in the court system that our listeners might um, might benefit from uh, engaging with. Who are they? So the first category would be professionals that are providing therapeutic services. And this can range from individual therapy to parent-child therapy to family therapy. And what these what services and what the goals are of this particular therapy really changes from family to family. So if there's a known issue, um, let's say between a, a parent-child dynamic, where already we can see that a child is resisting spending alone time with that parent, that is something that you want to catch as soon as you see it and intervene as, as close to immediately as possible. Because early intervention is something that is so helpful and so meaningful when it comes to parent-child contact problems. And if it is caught and dealt with pretty much right away, it is almost a surefire guarantee that that will help the relationship evolve over time and potentially prevent what, what's known as resist-refuse cases, where the children will then absolutely refuse to go to the other parent, and you have a whole mm-hmm. other set of issues on your hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd also say that the family therapy model is one that I'll use in a lot of cases, because sometimes it's really helpful for everyone in the system to get the attention that that they need that they might not know they need or that the parents might not know some of the children need or support that the parent themselves needs but hasn't gotten yet and there's potentially a lot of room for skill building and teaching what are the effective tools for communication how do i handle when my ex or my soon to be ex sends 25 emails within the span of an hour. What do I do? Do I have the ability to stop, walk away because none of it is crisis and so on and so forth. So therapeutic, I'd say, is the biggest help for families in in these situations. Um, Parenting coordination is another one that we mentioned. But then there's also consultation and evaluation. So as a consultant, parents are usually coming to me earlier on in the process. So either they're both coming to me or one of them is coming and saying, you know, we're thinking about getting divorced or we just started and we want to hear from a mental health professional. What should we keep in mind? Pretty much everything that you and I spoke about today, this is Mm -hmm. the topic of conversation that will often come up in a consultation. And more than what this conversation was, we can get into the specifics and the nuances of, okay, so you have a child who's 
seven years old and has special needs, what does that specifically mean for you? Or you have a child that's away in boarding school, what does that mean for you? So it can get a lot more individualized than this general conversation we've had. And yeah, then, I just I just want to chime in about the therapy for the kids too. I think that um, uh, if you've been raising your children as as I did in a very high conflict marriage, um, there's a tremendous amount of confusion. They've gotten conflicting information. They've they've experienced the trauma of the conflict. Uh, they're confused between how much they love their parents and and other things. There's loyalty issues. They're not going to talk to you. One of the things I was told was, your child's not going to tell you because they don't they don't want to be disloyal to the other parent. I had my kids in therapy at a young age. There was a banana splits program at the school. There was a school social worker. There were people, and my kids would say to me, it's confidential, mommy. You don't get to know. And I thought, how great is that, that there's someone that they can go to who's a mental health expert where they they can truly share their confusion, their struggle, their fears without feeling like they're being disloyal to either parent. And so I just want to make such a huge, huge plug for getting your kids into um, therapy and, and the schools that have those they're like group therapy. They're like, my kids became so much more emotionally intelligent because at such a young age, they began to articulate what they felt, what they feared, what they wanted. So, so just, just a big plug for that. You can go on now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd add a sense you kind of brought that up that in addition to the children become more emotionally intelligent. It also shows them that there are other ways of dealing with intense emotions. So we got to figure children are growing up in a high conflict home and they're exposed to one at most two stylistic ways of handling emotion. And so maybe they see, okay, if you're feeling something really intense, you can completely withdraw and shut down. And maybe maybe they're also seeing if you're feeling a strong emotion, you can be reactive and start screaming and throwing things. Mm -hmm. And then that's all that they're exposed to because that's what they're surrounded with. But if they're then in a group with other children who are exposed to other ways of dealing with feelings or even in a one to one sitting, they have the opportunity to think about, are there other ways that I can react? Is there some other way that I can respond to what I'm feeling that will actually help me feel better as opposed to just the tornado of reactivity that I'm used to. That's such a great point. That's an excellent point. So we have parent coordinators, we have um, family therapists, children therapists, of course, we're divorce coaches, we do a lot of the support as well. What other, um, are there any other experts you wanted to mention that, well, can we just, can you touch a little bit, I think you do this, or uh, on on custody evaluations, do you, do, are you involved yes, with that? I am, that was my last category. And I probably listed it last because it's my least favorite professionally when I have to do it, but also as an option for families that are divorcing. And the reason that, that it's my least favorite is because it is the most contentious 
and the least likely to lead to settlement and collaborative decision making. Because what happens in a custody evaluation is each parent is going to be heavily evaluated by a mental health professional and the children based on their age will be heavily evaluated. And then each parent with each child, that dyad will be heavily evaluated. And typically any professional that's come in contact with the family for the last number of years. So mental health professionals, medical professionals, if there's an ongoing issue, school um, staff and faculty member, all of these people, nannies, et cetera, they'll be contacted by the evaluator to give what we call collateral source information because all of these professionals have have an eye into the family and the functioning and the dysfunction. So as an evaluator, I want to hear from as many professionals as possible what they're seeing and what their concerns are. So you basically lose the opportunity to keep this a controlled and private process because so many people are contacted. And then when that evaluation is done and put together, this report gets published. Parents typically are not able to get a copy or hold on to a copy. It's only given to the court. Court gives it to the lawyers. Parents can then either read it in the lawyer's office or the lawyers read it to them. But at that point, potentially any secret or personal facet of your life and your history is in this paper that is now available to your soon-to-be ex and potentially will be raised during the course of litigation if the evaluation doesn't help the family reach settlement. Because then after this report gets released, ideally at that point, the report is so thorough and sufficiently guides the family with what the best case scenario is in terms of divorce and settlement that there's no need to litigate. But oftentimes that's not what happens. And the parents then go to litigation and then there's the public, like we say, airing of dirty laundry where you're in court and every day of trial, another aspect of your functioning will be highlighted for the court and used as a foundation to show why you are not a good parent and the other parent should have the custody that they're looking for. So, um, Leah, I completely hear what you're saying about um, all the challenges with it. And for the listeners, we actually have a custody evaluator. We're going to have a couple of shows down the road. So we're going to do a really deep dive into that. I do want to ask you, Leah, to balance what you just said with the benefits of a custody evaluation if you're divorcing someone with a personality disorder and everything is conflict and you're about to go into the rest of your life parenting with this person. What's the benefit of it? I'm glad you brought that up because for some families, there is no other option and collaborative divorce is a non-starter and the idea of reaching settlement you would just be wasting time and money and psychological energy. So, so there's no point to even trying. So with families like that, the benefit would be if they are assigned an evaluator or if they're able to select one that has familiarity and really good knowledge about the special issues in that family, whether it's overnight access with infants, 
parents with mental illness, parents with substance use, teenagers with special needs, whatever the particular special issue is in that family, if you can be matched with an evaluator that is knowledgeable on that topic and can then do this evaluation and inform on the best outcome for that particular family, given that particular family set of needs, that potentially can be used as the guide and the compass for going forward. But the evaluator's ability to do that will depend on their own background and, cha- and training and knowledge, as well as the courts allowing the evaluator to either make recommendations or not make recommendations. Because in New York, yeah. the judges will specify whether or not an evaluator can or should specifically comment on recommendations for custody, as opposed to commenting on the clinical picture, the needs of the family, et cetera. But if the report is thorough and sufficient, it should be a no-brainer as to what the best path forward is. But I would just add this caveat that as good of a report as it is, to your question that prompted this, you are still going to have to parent with the other parent for the rest of your child's life. So no matter how good of a report you get, there will always be that challenge of how do I communicate with the other parents? How do I deal with the other parent? Because even when you get divorced, as much as you're not living under the same roof as that other parent, almost always there will still be times where you have to interact in some way with the other parent. Right. And and the other expert we will have on down down the road a piece this year is um, someone speaking about parallel parenting and exactly what that means and how you can begin to formulate that during the legal process and, and the best that you can hope for post-divorce. Because many, many of our listeners who are truly in a high conflict divorce with a personality disorder um, are going to... I've said this from the beginning, like they they feel bad that they can't co-parent, but it's not that they can't mm-hmm. co-parent, it's that the dynamic doesn't exist. And so I think to Leah's, to Leah's point, it's so important to know that, that everything in court is a crapshoot. It's like justice is out the window. Fairness is out the window. You can end up with a great judge and a great uh, custody evaluator and do phenomenal and you could not. And so going in eyes wide open and having an attorney, and this is what we talked about in this show on the essential guidelines, legal guidelines, having an attorney who's a straight shooter and honest with you is absolutely vital. Um, Leia, this has been so helpful. Do you have any last tips or wisdom that you want to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? I'd say that my concluding thought is for all of your listeners to remember that the most meaningful and potentially far-reaching thing they can do is preventative work. So before the word of divorce is even floated in the first place, ideally we want our parents to be mindful of the children's experiences. And the minute that they become aware that we can't really control the conflict between us, the children are being exposed to the fighting, a child is starting to have difficulty with a parent, Um, the arguing is about the child and the child hears it. When, When this is sort of what's going on and the occurrences in the home, that is the time to step in and immediately think about Is there a need for individual therapy? Is there a need for co-parenting work? 
the more preventative work we can do, the greater the likelihood that we're, we're really saving these children's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, my two cents is even if there's only one healthy, non-reactive, rather responsive parent, your children can emerge whole and healthy if you're keeping the focus on their best interest and you're biting your tongue and you're learning and growing emotionally through the troubles, uh, you end up doing a very different dance afterwards and you end up um, benefiting both yourself and your children in in doing that work. And so we're going to be talking more about that in the upcoming shows as well. You can reach uh, Leah Younger uh, and learn more about her at youngerpsychology.com. Leah has offices in both Manhattan and Long Island, and all of her information is on her website, youngerpsychology.com. Leah, thank you so much. Uh, it's just terrific information, really, really helpful for our listeners. I appreciate your time and everything that you shared with us. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Before you leave, please take a minute and review our Journey Beyond Divorce podcast on iTunes and pay it forward to someone who is searching for good, helpful, positive content um, in the area of divorce. And don't forget to subscribe to our Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. That way you'll be notified with each new episode that goes live. We have 19 more coming, so plenty, plenty more for you. Our next episode will focus on how to protect your finances, followed by a special episode of Hope where former Journey Beyond Divorce clients share their stories from pain and struggle to choosing to be the change in their life and then emerging better and with new lives that they have built and love. You're welcome to join our Journey Beyond Divorce community on Facebook, where you'll receive guidance and encouragement from our coaches, along with support from other members. And you can also find an abundance of free resources at jbddivorcesupport.com. And if you prefer, YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter, we're there too, sharing information and guidance to encourage you. Tune back in in two weeks, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.